Welcome to Newborn to Teen and Everything in Between, the podcast from Bespoke Family. I'm Bex. And I'm Claire. Thanks for joining us as we tackle the ups and downs of life with children, helping you to get the best out of your time together. No rules, no judgment, just guidance. So grab a cuppa and let's get started with today's episode. So welcome to today's podcast episode of Newborn to Teen and Everything in Between. For today's podcast, we are absolutely delighted to welcome Suzanne Alderson to talk all about parenting mental health. Um, Suzanne set up a a charity, Parenting Mental Health, um, that supports, connects and skills parents of young people with poor mental health. And the charity, which I'm sure um, Suzanne's going to tell us all about, um, their mission, which I just think is amazing, is to end generational mental illness and to help one million parents by 2025. So welcome, Suzanne. It's just an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to meet you both. Oh, thank you. And you too. So I think kind of the first thing to start with is just a little bit about you, your story, why you set the charity up kind of to set the scene would be really great. Yeah. So my experiences really drove me to set Parenting Mental Health up. Um, In 2015, my daughter Izzy was 14 and she was being really badly bullied at school. And it had a huge impact on her mental health, obviously. But what we found was she didn't want us to go and speak to the school. In fact, she said to me, Mum, if you go and speak to them, I'll never trust you again. And for me, that was a really important uh, line that I didn't want to cross. Um, But we saw her mental health declining over a period. So she'd start to withdraw a bit more. She didn't want to eat with us. She wasn't going out with her friends. Getting her to school was a bit of a struggle, not a massive struggle, not not in the ways that we see with lots of parents in parenting mental health. But it, it was one of those things where she clearly didn't want to go into this place, which was traumatic, uh, unsafe and um, was having such an impact on her. But in the end, my husband said, this is ridiculous. We've got to do something. You know, we're parents. We fix stuff. Come on, let's go and fix it. And so he went and spoke to the school and they said, we will remove the bullies from her class. It's fine. We were just about to go into the summer holidays. And we went into those thinking, actually, yeah, it's okay. We've kind of, we've, we've done this now. We've, we've got it all right. We'll be back on track. Off we go. And I remember in the September in the car on the way to school, her saying to me, mom, I've got this. I've got this because we told her and she was relieved and off, off we went. And then later that day, I got a phone call from her, which really changed. Well, I suppose it was one of two phone calls that changed the trajectory of our lives. And the first phone call was her screaming down the phone at me, they're in my class, they're in my class. And the school had actually forgotten to move the bullies and not only forgotten to move them, but they were actually seated either side of her. So it kind of was a double whammy, really. And then we saw a really sharp decline in her mental health. So within a few days, she wasn't eating at all. She wasn't sleeping. She wouldn't leave the house. So she wasn't going to school. She wouldn't even go outside. And so I took her to see our GP and he was absolutely brilliant. And he referred her to CAMS, which is the Child Adolescent Mental Health Service with about a nine to 12 week waiting list. And at the time, nine to 12 weeks for me, many of our parents now would probably, you know, do whatever they needed to do to get nine to 12 weeks. But at the time, 9 to 12 
days, sometimes some days nine to 12 minutes was more than I knew how to cope with. And my face probably was a picture. And he said, okay, all right, I can see that's a challenge. Come back and see me next week. And so the following week we went to see him. Um, He said, come and see me until the referral comes through. I'll see you as many times as you like. And in that, uh, for that appointment, Izzy said to me, is it okay if I go in on my own, mum? I just want to go in on my own. And I was like, oh, okay then. Just a bit, bit weird, a bit strange, but all right, that's okay. And she came up with the doctor after about 15 minutes and he said, just go home, I'm going to give you a call. And that call really was the one that changed our whole lives because she disclosed to him that she had a plan to end her life imminently. And we later found out that was that evening. So if we hadn't have gone to the doctors that day, pure chance, pure luck, um, she would have uh, you know, made good on her plan. And she was very quickly wrapped in, in amazing care. We were very fortunate to have excellent care from CAMS. Um, but as parents, we simply didn't know how to cope with it. So we didn't have anybody we knew that had been through something similar. Uh, We didn't have the skills at the time to understand how best to support her. And we had no kind of uh, space, I suppose, to be able to reflect on our own experiences, our own emotional response to this. Because I can still feel, what is it now? I'm really rubbish at maths, seven. It'll be eight years this September. I can still feel the grain of the wood if I close my eyes um, of the bookcase that I was holding on to when I took the phone call. You know, these things are deep traumas that impact on us. But we didn't have those kinds of spaces. Our friends and family tried to understand, but they simply couldn't because they'd not been through it. Um, Parents in the CAMS waiting room, which was a little bit unfortunate, it did double up as a physiotherapy um, waiting room as well. But I'd look at parents and I'd think you know, come on, let's let's make eye contact. We can help each other through this. And yet nobody wanted to um, connect because this is probably the most shameful experience that a parent can have. My child wants to end their life. So in terms of my job description, keeping you safe, helping you to learn and grow and become independent, you know, the whole roots to grow, wings to fly thing, I have abjectly failed. And what I realised over time was that I hadn't failed, but I had a lot to learn. And I remember sitting on Izzy's floor on suicide watch, 3am, thinking to myself, gosh, there's all those parents of babies and toddlers that are probably awake at this time. I bet there aren't any other teenagers or teenage parents, parents of teenagers. And then I realised that there must be, I couldn't be the only parent going through this. We couldn't be the only family facing this challenge. And so I decided that if we made it through, which I'm delighted to say that we did, Izzy's now 21. Um, She was, I can talk about what she, what happened, but, you know, she was chronically depressed. She was underweight. She had generalized anxiety disorder. She attempted suicide several times. She self-harmed. She was out of school for two years. She has two GCSEs, but she also has a degree. So there's kind of a, there was a really unusual way of kind of coming to this, you know, but she became who she is now through this real deep adversity. And so did we as parents. And so for me, it was a case of if we get through it, I'm going to make this my mission. I'm going to make sure that no other parent feels like I did, which was deep shame 
I felt such shame about this because we don't talk about young people having poor mental health because in 2015, and I think probably still in 2023, although definitely we're seeing massive shifts and changes, there is this sense that children don't have mental health and they don't have poor mental health. And at that time, it was a case of this is a problem I need to fix. This isn't something that's part of her as a person. And so I felt deep shame about that. I felt incredibly isolated because the frame of reference that I used to use to look at my family, her, our relationship had been shattered and nobody could give me that sense of um, certainty that I really needed. Hugely uncertain time, um, you know, massively challenging, deeply traumatic and yet nobody could give me what I needed. I couldn't find somebody who'd say, I'm holding my hand out to you. I'm here. I've been through this. I know how hard it is. It's going to challenge every cell in your body and every element in your life. But you can come through this. I'm here for you. And it can actually get better. This might be something that shifts your whole dynamic in your family if you can allow it. And I didn't feel skilled. I was a really collaborative parent, I felt. I have a son as well who's seven years older than Izzy. And I felt like I'd been a collaborative parent. I felt like I'd been as present as I could be. You know, we all bring our own story to parenting, don't we? We all have our own challenges that we bring. And, you know, I I felt like I'd been as good a parent as I could be with what I knew. But this was out of the remit. This was not in the job description. And I had no way of dealing with it. And so what I did was I leaned into what the professionals told me. And over time, I lost Izzy. I lost sight of her more and more because all the things that we were told to do, which have shifted since then somewhat in some areas, um, they, you know, they, they pushed her away. They made her, fur- they, they, she went further away from us because what our actions said was, I don't understand what you're going through. I just want to fix this so we can get back to our life and I'm not listening. And so I needed to shift my whole approach all of the ways I behaved, communicated, my beliefs, the expectations I had, the assumptions I made, the whole lot. And that's where Partnering Not Parenting came from, which is um, an approach that we um, advocate at Parenting Mental Health. And so about, I suppose, about nine months after Izzy first um, went into crisis, I decided I would take that first step in to trying to meet that that desire to um, support other parents. And that was to start a Facebook group. And we had in the first year 300 parents. And for me, that was phenomenal. I can remember getting to the 300th parent and thinking, wow, there are 300 other families like me who feel this pain, who are in this place, and we can help them. We can bring them together. We can give them a space where they can say, do you know what? This is really hard. I don't like my child today. I have no idea what to do. We're in crisis. What what do we do? And it was just so heartening to see the connection that comes from that shared experience. And and then it started to grow. And then in 2018, Facebook selected me as one of their 100 most meaningful community leaders. And that really elevated all the work we were doing. So they put me on a program of, of development. And by the end of, I think it was well, I don't even know what the the, t- the timings were. We sort of had, I think I had about 2,000 people in 2018 in 2020, when we received our charity status, we had 12,000 parents in our community. And now we support around 40,000 parents in that peer support community. 
And so for me, it was really important that it was based on lived experience because all of the things I was being told by the professionals, and this is not to diminish, obviously, their many years of of learning and um, experience, but living, parenting, partnering through this is a very different uh, premise to the pathway, that medical clinical pathway, because mental health is a continuum. It's not something that, you know, oh, I'll tell you what, take this pill, do this therapy, uh, you know, go for a walk every day, have a shower, brush your teeth, whatever it is, and you'll be okay in six weeks. And, you know, so that medical model is very different to what you actually need in the moment. You need a really compassionate, um, patient and open-ended level of support. So for me, it was really important. And that's why the Facebook community was the, the that digital space, that peer-to-peer support was so important. There are no rules about how, who can join, aside from the fact you need to be a parent of a child with a mental health issue. Um, and that's the, that's the only criteria for care. It's on 24 hours a day. Um, and you can share what you need to share. And people will get it. People understand. It's judgment-free, um, because I thought I was a good parent and I was a good parent. And I think when your child's mental health declines, you look to yourself first and you blame yourself. I mean, I think probably you blame your child first or you can do, which is that this is something that they have some kind of agency over. And most of the time they have no agency at all. And that's why we are in this position. Um, but I think for me as a parent, I used to think, you know, good parents don't have children who attempt suicide. I mean, that just does not compute, but actually they do. And all of the inputs that go into our children, you know, there's a limitation on what we can control. Um, but for me, this was a, an opportunity, really. And, and the, the amazing work that our team does at the charity now, we're really, um, really fortunate to have an amazing team of volunteers. We're volunteer led um, who support parents in multiple ways. You know, we run sessions with trained facilitators with lived experience. You know, we we run the Partnering Not Parenting course. Um, we have the peer support community, a load of other different ways that you can connect with people. But the key for us is how can we improve your experience of parenting a child through poor mental health? And how can we make you feel not like I did, which was ashamed, isolated, and just not at all equipped to be able to deal with this? Wow. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Suzanne, because that's, gosh, that's tough. But do you know what really struck me when you were speaking? The number of times that you said you felt shame, ashamed and shame. I did that really struck me because, you know, no, no part of what you said gave a reflection on your parenting. And so therefore that what was where does that come from? Well, I think we have a lot of stories fed to us, don't we, about what a good parent looks like. And I think the fear that surrounds poor mental health means that as parents, we do tend to be isolated in this. You know, it's a long time since I stood at a school gate, but I can remember vividly the sense of, um, you know, not necessarily. I mean, I, I've, I've always been an outlier, I think, but that sense of this is the way you do things this is what good parenting looks like. Um, And, you know, when your child's mental health declines, the fingers always get pointed at the parent. So they get pointed at the parent by schools, they get pointed at the parent by professionals, they get pointed at the parent by friends and family, inadvertently, because we are fearful, 
We are fearful of poor mental health because we want to shut it down like I did. You know, I did loads of things wrong. Um, I was, I didn't listen enough. I glossed over things. I tried to fix it. And that's what we tend to do as a society. And so what that does for the individual, when we feel I am wrong, not I did something wrong, I am wrong, because this person who I've brought into the world, who is my world, and of course, my son is as well, if he's ever listening to this, but you know, this person (laughs) who I've brought into the world is my world. And I've messed it up. I've kind of, you know, I've allowed this to happen. And I think that shift in the narrative on a couple of levels, one of them is around how we look at poor mental health in young people. You know, Izzy um, was growing up and, you know, young people today are growing up in a very different world to the one that you and I grew up in, even though you're way younger than me. But, you know, we are growing up in different worlds. So the access that, that people have to them, you know, in, you know, you can be bullied in your bedroom. How horrific is that? You know, so I can't manage all of those inputs. So that's one thing. Um, but I think the way that we need to also look at the narrative around mental health itself, you know, there's been huge strides and, you know, massive leaps forward in the way that we talk about it. But if we look at the actual day to day elements of it, it's pretty distasteful. So it's pretty hard. The behaviours that are manifested because of anxiety, depression, trauma, um, being neurodiverse in a neurotypical world, whatever those things are, they're pretty unacceptable to most people. They don't fit the narrative of what a good child or a good parent looks like. So we have to have more compassion. And I don't think as a society, we're just, we're there yet. I don't think we have that level of compassion for, you know, people struggling. You know, poor mental health and, you know, it's good to talk and all these other things I really commend. But actually, when you look at the hardcore facts of living day in, day out with poor mental health, it isn't pleasant and it isn't tasteful. And so I think, you know, there does come a level of shame that you can't make progress. You know, we were a long time in and a long time out. So um, in my book, there's a curve that I developed because, you know, for me, I really needed to see where I was going because it felt like every day was the same and we weren't making any progress. But when I reflect, we probably were in this sort of um, fast decline for about 18 months before the crisis hit. Now, we were fortunate, I think, that a crisis hit and that Izzy could say, you know, to our doctor, I'm going to, this is my only option is to end my life. I mean, that's just horrific on so many levels, but actually I feel very fortunate about that. But equally, it's a long time out. You know, it probably took her, you know, she's still recovering. She's doing great. She's been to university. She's got a degree. She's going, you know, traveling, whatever. But she's still recovering because the impacts of it are long lasting. And I think the problem that we've got is where we have this binary kind of view of what good parenting looks like. It doesn't allow for the grayscale. It doesn't allow for the challenging places that we sit in when our child's mental health declines. And in parenting mental health, we support parents, but we do support a lot of parents who whose children are, you know, they, they are ill and they're going to be ill for quite some time. You know, we also obviously support parents who have got children whose mental health is, you know, declining and, you know, it won't become a mental illness. Um, but I think the key is that how we look at this, the compassionate eyes that we can look at through, you know, we can look through at parents and also at young people, you know, to have that patience, to change the way we communicate, you know, that's really key. And for me, 
I think the isolation also fueled that shame because if I if you don't have someone you can identify with, then it's very hard to be able to uh, challenge yourself on your own beliefs and your own reflection uh, re- responses and and how you how you behave. And so that sense of isolation fueled the shame. And I think that's something that no parent deserves to go through. No parent needs to feel that because we all do our best. And great Maya Angelou, I quote a lot, you know, it's in, or I, I, I kind of cut her longer phrase down into when we know better, we do better. Um, but without somebody to say, you know, here's my hand, I've been here, it's okay. This is normal. You will feel guilty. You will feel shame, but it's not actually helpful. It's not true and it won't be helping your family, then, you know, that will perpetuate. And I just don't think that's fair on any parent. However you got here, whatever you're going through, it's just not helpful. You're so articulate in how you are talking about it. And I think that is probably really helpful to so many parents as well. Because I think when something like this happens, there's so much, like you say, going through cams and things like that, it it goes down a medical route and they become something that needs to be fixed. And that's only because, you know, that again is not something against CAMS. That's a pro, you know, they do this, they're trying to help, but actually it it just changes, doesn't it? It's where you instinctively parent prior to this and you're thinking you, you, you're going along, everything's fine. And then something, there can be that bump in the road or several bumps in a road that then suddenly lead to something has is he ever said what made her tell the doctor that day i think she i yeah i think she wanted to be heard um mm. one time we ended up in a and e after an attempt and there was a male nurse who i wish we could find uh who listened to her and i remember her telling me later she said it was it was just that somebody actually cared about my life that I was still here, that I was breathing, mm. that I had a future. Sorry, it's going to get me a little bit. Always gets me a little bit. Um, because, you know, as a parent, you see this future. You see this brilliant, bright future that your child has. And, you know, there is a limit to what we as parents can do. We, You know, we've got the ultimate responsibility, but we don't have the ultimate control. In fact, we don't have any control generally, except for over what we can we can how we behave and how we respond. But I think for her, it was that sense of being seen and heard. And in, you know, we are, I, I, you know, at the time I was running a business with my husband, we were very busy. We thought we were doing all the right things by her, but we were, you know, I hold my hands up. I was busy. I was too busy on the things that actually didn't matter. I mean, they did matter. We needed to live. We needed a house, all that sort of stuff. But actually, when it came down to it and the times where she had tried to come to me and say, mum, I'm struggling or whatever, I'd probably shut her down. And in a, you know, in a, in a very naive attempt to try and make this okay, because I had this thought that love would, would save us. Love would be enough. And actually love isn't enough. It's a great starting point, but it isn't enough. We need to have, uh, the spaces where you can go and find other people who have a different perspective, who might be further along the road. 
And that isn't a pitch for PMH. That's just the sense of you need it, whether it's a friend, whether it's your family, whether it's a group, whatever it is, you need those spaces where you can connect with people who are further along who can say, I see you and I see your challenges. But as parents, we also need to skill ourselves and we need to skill ourselves really in those those core things. I was a great communicator, or so I thought, before Izzy became unwell. What I wasn't great at, although I did listen, was I wasn't a great listener. I wasn't, you know, I, I think it's a really challenging, you know, for parents, there's all this, you know, there's so much stuff, isn't there now about being, being this and doing that. And, you know, you've got all this responsibility, but fundamentally the basics were, you know, am I present? Can I be patient? And am I listening? And if you can do those, aside from all the other stuff that, you know, we'll skill you up in a PMH, you know, but they're fundamentally what it is. And I think so often we're fearful. Again, we're fearful of poor mental health. We want to get through it as quickly as possible. I say we, this was me, 2015, 2014. If we can just get through this, I can remember in um, probably a couple of years beforehand um, and she'd scratched herself, you know, the start, we see this a lot, you know, kind of one of those ways that young people often come into harming themselves and I can remember you know and I share this not because I'm proud of it I share this because if you can identify with this I'm you know then maybe you might want to shift your perspective a little bit but I can remember saying to her you know don't do that ever again I mean yeah can you imagine saying to somebody my heart is breaking I'm really hurting I'm in pain and I need to be safe I need to feel emotionally safe I'm coming to you this is a big deal for me to share with you and they shut you down now like I say I'm not proud of it but I share all the stuff that I did wrong because I know that it came from a place of love and I know that so many other parents feel the same I think that you know when you when you said about um she she felt that that person cared about her life you know that it's so interesting isn't it because of course like you said you and your whole family care about her life you love her but actually that isn't enough that it that the care caring about her life needed to come like almost external validation and I think to myself all the time with my teenagers how much they come across all of the stuff about mental health and I I do feel that particularly my daughter knows a lot more than I do about it and I kind of feel like sometimes as parents we're a little bit on the back foot you know, it, in that they kind of are actually much more deeply ensconced in this whole stuff. They are talked to about it at school. You know, they have counsellors at school. They have um, so much online, you know, on Instagram, on TikTok and everything. And some of it is not helpful. Um, but, but yeah, but like you say, I mean, I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with that in terms of but the whole kind of somebody caring about my life it doesn't necessarily mean you mum (laughs) completely and I also think that we tend to show love in ways that are not loving so we tend to show love in ways you know that do your homework get to bed you know why haven't you eaten um you know so we don't actually show love in ways that are loving to our children have and you been to my house? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been to every house and that's the key, isn't it? We all do it because we're yeah. busy and we have 
responsibilities outside of our parenting. We have a responsibility to our family. We have a responsibility to maybe our job. We have a responsibility to maybe parents, our aging parents. There's so many demands on us. So what we try and do is to simplify. And, and and it can be that our interactions, particularly in the teenagers, it's hard because they are moving away from us. And I think they're living in a world, like I said earlier, they're living in a world that we don't necessarily understand. So it is hard to connect with them. And so we can d- sort of diminish all of our love into really distinct packages of interaction, you know, around sleep, food, homework, school, you know, and that's something as parents, I think for me, what this experience gave me was an opportunity to reflect on what was really important. And what was really important was that, you know, looking beyond now, and I talk about our experience, um, sometimes uh, people may think I'm a little bit toxically positive. I am absolutely not toxically positive. I'm very pragmatic about what we went through. But I see this adversity as an opportunity, not only obviously that she's still here, thank goodness, but also that it changed the whole dynamic of our family. Because what is important, actually, what's really important? You know, what's important on a daily basis might be that your child doesn't get a detention. But what's really important is that they feel loved. They have a space where they can feel emotionally safe. They can start to explore without fear. You know, they can come to you and share things and they're not going to get what what she got from me in about 2013, which is don't do that again. You know, so it's about, you know, I think our responsibility as parents, emotional safety and being able to see beyond the now. And so many of the parents, as I was, that we work with, you know, they are immersed in this moment so deeply um, that it's really hard for them to see beyond it. And I think the key for me was that, you know, my husband and I have always said, we want our children to be in our life for the rest of our life. So sometimes, yes, you do you do make um, of course you make mistakes you're, you're human you know they're not mistakes they're learning opportunities obviously but you know we are making decisions so that we will have a longer term relationship and that might mean taking dishes, decisions that people don't agree with or making decisions that feel hard in the moment but being able to say listen you know you can have your reaction to this and that's okay I can hold whatever emotional response you've got because I'm here, I'm grounded. And I think this is so important for parents, the whole self-care thing. We can get into that if you want to. But, you know, that whole sense of understanding what you are bringing to it, how you can be the container for your family. Because as I was in 2014, 2015, bring me something that doesn't fit. And this isn't that, you know, doesn't fit the narrative. It isn't that I got this perfect life planned out. I was absolutely winging it anyway. But it was the case that this does not, fit with anything that I can understand I can't pattern match this so that I know what to do Um, so it's really important I think for parents to be able to recognize the challenge of this recognize their immense role I mean I'm such a fierce advocate of parents we have the greatest responsibility but we also can have the greatest impact it just might not be today it might be in 10 years time it might be when our child has a child of their own but that's a, an amazing um, and quite scary and daunting. Um, wow, well, it's a privilege, isn't it? So I think the key mm-hmm. for me is like, how can we be that container? But also in order to do that, how can we then reflect back on what we need as parents? So it does all start with us. It doesn't end with us, but it does start with us. And yeah, I think that's just really, really important. You're partnering not 
partnering not parenting is that right that sounds quite I don't know if it's a similar concept to one that Claire talks about a lot which is being a consultant not a manager but I don't know do you can you just describe what what it means and you know what what you mean by it of course so when, as I said, Izzy, when Izzy became ill, uh, the, the, all the things that I was told would help a child with a mental health issue uh, didn't. Um, they forced her away. They showed her that I didn't care or they, they said that I didn't care. They showed that I wasn't necessarily listening and I was trying to fix this. And so the shift that I made in my behaviour and my communication style became the partnering, not parenting framework. So the first stage is to step down and that's stepping down from your emotions from your experience, um, from your judgment, and also from your authority. Now, um, and before I go any further, I have to say, this isn't about not parenting. This isn't about no boundaries. What this is, is about looking at this situation and saying, it doesn't matter how you got here, and it doesn't matter how long it goes on, but if you want to make some changes and you want to come out better, more connected, then you are going to have to shift. And the only thing that you can control is yourself. So that first stage of recognising that maybe you've had experiences of poor mental health. I know I did in my teens. Me sharing that with Izzy was really diminishing for her. It invalidated her experience and it said, actually, you don't see me as a person. You just see me as, oh, I'm just a child. So that was the first thing. So stepping down from my authority, knowing what was right for her, my judgment on her and myself, um, my experience and also my emotions. Now I was consumed by my emotions, absolutely just flooded with fear and anxiety and guilt and, you know, grief and all of these horrible things. And I needed to find a way to be able to manage those and to be able to work through them in a way that was helpful, not only for me personally, so I could be that container, I could be that safe space for her. Um, but also, um, helpful for me because it's exhausting being emotionally activated the whole time while you're still looking at this really challenging situation as well so that was the first stage the next stage is standing beside so standing beside your child in their choices again this isn't about no boundaries it's about understanding that some of the behaviors that you'll see are a reflection of how they're feeling internally and so actually building that emotional safety out in the in this kind of stage of it is really important so that is about you know, advocacy, it's about, um, you know, living adaptively. You, know, you might not be able to get what you want today, but it's okay. We'll just respond to it in the moment because what we're trying to do through the whole partnering approach is to build that emotional safety and that connection um, and, and to be consistent as well. So standing beside your child consistently in your actions, not saying, oh, it's fine that you don't go to school because I understand that you're not well one day and then forcing them, dragging them out to the school gate the next so that's, that's, that's a really important thing. And what we find with a lot of parents is because of the demands on us, we're not consistent in our parenting because it's almost becomes, you know, it's not a conscious thing. And then the travel together stage, the last part of the partnering approach is really about seeing where this might take you. So not only in terms of um, being an ally, I think, in your child's growth. Um, but also seeing that you might not end up where you thought you were. And that's for you as much as it is for your child. I mean, I never thought that I would set a charity up ever in my life. I didn't think I'd write a book. I mean, I, ha I did, but I thought it would be a murder mystery novel. But anyway, that's a whole other <laughs> um, But yeah, it's like this whole kind of this whole opportunity is one to take you to new places. You know, Izzy was at a highly academic school. 
she would have ended up with 1100 GCSEs and off to a Russell Group University and all the rest of it. And she didn't. She has two GCSEs. She has um, um, a degree in an arts, an arts degree. She'd never have done that. So the key for this is for that travel together stage and the whole partnering approach is really to say, you know, you don't know where you, you often don't know where you started and you also don't know where you're going to end up. But if you can work together, if you can step down, stand beside and travel together, then you have an opportunity to build a, a, a rapport, an understanding, a connection with your child in a way that you wouldn't have done had you not have had this adversity. And I just want to say that parenting a child with a mental health issue is very different to parenting a child. There are some very, um, you know, there are similarities, obviously. But when you're faced with things, when you're faced with a child who has cut their arms, when you are faced with a child who doesn't want to live, when you are faced with a child who won't eat, you know, all of these things are immediately we look at in the moment. I need to shut this down now. I need to fix it. And actually, this whole experience for me, for many of our parents that we support, is an opportunity to build that sense of connection. I think to build a connection to ourselves as people, as well as parents. And the Partnering Not Parenting approach has, in many ways, lots of the the elements of it, um, you know, some, I don't want to say the word hack, but some of the tools that we teach have a, a, a really immediate response because... It's just it just says I'm listening. I hear you, and it's okay. You can be emotionally safe with me. And at a time where young people tend to feel that they have little agency, the whole framework, the whole approach is about enabling them to have agency, to feel that they can take agency over what's going on with them. And yeah, and that's that's such an important part. And I think that's an important springboard for them as they grow into young adulthood as well. I think a lot of what we talk about with working with so little ones right the way through to the teens is that you know talking about emotions and emotions are natural and normal that we're not we there's this real instinctive need for our children to always be happy and show us that they're happy because in a way that reflects on us that we're doing a good job because if someone's happy that means all's good in the world and that's a reflection of us as parents or as child carers you know happiness in someone is a positive thing and actually if our children grow up thinking that we ought they always have to show us that they've got this and they're positive and it's okay and they can deal with it uh, when do they then have that permission to go this is really tough actually I'm feeling really fearful about something right now or I'm feeling really sad and then we go it's okay if we do this if we do that it'll all be fixed and it's like actually they just need us to be in that moment with them to go yeah you do feel sad or you are fearful like being bullied is a horrific experience on whatever level it is I think we can always I think everyone has an experience of something in their lifetime, whether it's as a child or as an adult, you've always come across someone who makes you feel, and obviously it can be escalated hugely and massively impacting on children. Um, But I think if a child's there going, I need to look like I'm happy and I can deal with this. And we always talk about giving them the strategies as they're little to then come in 
to being older and they might not be able to do it straight away or you might still get to this stage but at least if they're hearing it and used to it and knowing that they can say those emotions it helps I think and I think we've got to be much more and as parents it's kind of going I'm fearful or I'm worried about this I can see that you're really struggling what can I do you know, do you need me to do anything rather than I'm going to fix it? And that's, that is a really big thing, isn't it? And I think my other thing, as children get older, we kind of let them go off more, which is absolutely what they need to do. But then we need to find those new connections to, like you say, to parent how you want to parent rather than what society says is, oh, teenagers, they're all moody, they don't talk, you won't get any words out of them. And so you go into parenting teenagers going, well, they're not talking, they're, they're just grumpy, or they don't want to come and have dinner with us. So you kind of go, this is normal teenage. It's still working on those things, isn't it? And it's potentially changing that narrative of children and what children need to be, you know, able to voice how they're feeling. Suzanne, do you feel that you always have parents come to you at crisis point? Because it just struck me from what Claire was saying was, you know, there are things. So, for example, you know, in my I'm not going to I won't share about my children because I haven't, you know, that I'm not sure they would be um, comfortable with that. But, um, you know, there are things that you're saying that actually, you know, having not reached a crisis point, I still think would be useful kind of guidance and tips and things like that for me as a parent of teenagers um you know that they've been through their own things and you know things still carry on for them and there are definitely points that I can recognize in what you're saying where I think actually some of the things you're talking about would be useful yeah absolutely I think we don't have to come to crisis to Mm. change I think the, and also we don't have to feel guilty for changing either. Um, you know, it took it took crisis for us as a family to change. And I don't see that there's any need for that. In fact, when our CEO read my book, she said to me, I think everybody should read your book because it's about communication. It's about connection. It's about humanity. It's not just about parenting a child with a mental health issue. Um, so I'm absolutely with you. And I think the key is, is, is how can we look at this in a more temporal kind of way? How can we look beyond now and this moment? And I think the other, I suppose it's, um, it's a fallacy, really, is that you either are in crisis or you're not and everything's fine. Not everything is fine. You know, my son doesn't have mental health issues, but he's had his challenges. We all have challenges to overcome. And I think, as Claire was saying about the happiness you know, uh, issue. It's not about happiness. It's about presence. It's about, can I be present today with people who care about me? Can I share with them what's going on honestly, openly? And can I have that sense of knowing that whatever happens, whatever comes next, we'll work our way through it, not to fix it, might, maybe to sit with it. You know, we might have to sit with this for some time. Um, but I definitely think that if we can be more I suppose more conscious I know there's a whole conscious parenting approach but it's more for me about us being conscious as people it's about us as parents understanding that we are bringing up 
other people. They are our children, but they are people in their own right. And yeah, I think there's a, a huge opportunity for everybody. And I think it probably starts, it all starts with you as a person and a parent. And I also think it just starts today. So you don't have to think about the future. I talked there about a temporal element. I think sometimes it's really helpful to be thinking, or oh, actually, you know, this won't matter in a, a month, a year, five years, 10 years, or it might, it might actually matter. And that can give you a different perspective. But then also just thinking, what can I do today? What do I need today? What does my child need today? Have you asked them? Probably not. And I think it's important that we look at it on a day-to-day basis. So like today, there is something I can do. So I can pause. That's what I could do today. So instead of, you know, engaging with my child because they won't engage with me, that's what I hear a lot, which is, oh, my child, my teenager won't, they, they, they don't talk to me. It's like, well, do you talk to them? And not in a kind of, I am not at all judgmental, but it is a, a really clear question. Are you talking to them or are you talking at them? Are you waiting for them just to, you know, sort of break down and say, mom, I want to tell you everything about my day? Well, no, you're probably not the kind of conditions aren't right for that. And Mm -hmm. there's no blame around that. But there is an opportunity. And as parents, we have that opportunity. We can say, do you know what, actually, we're going to go out for a drive. We're going to go for a drive through. We're going to go and have a coffee together. We're going to I mean, McDonald's was definitely our friend. Um, when Izzy was ill, we used to drive through. I mean, I've been in drive through McDonald's all over the Midlands at all times of day and night. But that sense of sitting, you know, next to each other, probably shouldn't have shared that, should I? Sorry, not sorry. Um, but, you know, I should be sponsored by McDonald's. That's probably not a good thing either. Um, but that whole sense of being side by side and being able to just talk about things or not talk. And I think that's the other thing that we do as parents is like, I need to know everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. We need to have those boundaries in place. And I, you know, a lot of the parents that we talk to and support think that boundaries are getting your child to do what you want. And they're not. They are co-created, co-communicated ways of being together that serve everybody's well-being, not just ours as parents. And yes, of course, we understand more because we're older, we have that frame of reference and the experience we can draw upon. But equally, if our children are not allowed to trial things, I'm not suggesting anything dangerous, but just to make their own choices, to make their own um, mistakes, then how will they learn? And I think this comes again back to the happiness piece that Claire was talking about, which is, you know, we have to have them happy the whole time. No, we don't. None of us are happy the whole time. And that's the part of being a human, a real rounded whole human. And yeah, I think the, the best thing we can do is look for presence, not for happiness. I just wanted to go back to the school situation in that ultimately that trigger of not listening to that request with regards to moving potentially was a catalyst to lots of other things. How did that relationship with the school actually end up being did they understand it did they did they support you that's a great question Claire um so I uh, the the response that we got was oh really sorry we knew there was someone we'd forgotten and you know that's really not very connective empowering or supportive I think that there's been such a lot of work done around mental health in schools since um, we do see that there's still a huge way to go because 
there's still this um I will answer your question in a moment honestly but you know there's this still this kind of sense that this is a choice by young people to not be able to attend or to you know to become anxious or oh they can just stop it because they're just children and like I say there are some amazing schools doing amazing work amazing educators doing amazing work but I think there's still this underlying belief that this is a choice by children and young people and it's really not and so the sense I think the challenge we face is how do we prioritize a child or a young person's mental health um, when the metrics are about education they're about exams they're about attendance so for us the choice that we had the only choice that I felt I had because she couldn't get out of bed in the same way as if she'd had some kind of physical illness my only choice was to remove her from school. And that was scary, I have to say. The school were kind of like, oh, oh, right, okay, that's what you're doing, is it? And then the local authority said, so what are you doing for home educating? And I was like, we're not home educating at the moment. She is in crisis. She can't think straight. You know, she has no cognitive capability currently. We're going to heal her, help her to heal, and then we'll look at the education. And I think that's a key thing as well. We can kind of force our children down this sort of channel of, right, you've got to get the exams. And if you don't get the exams, then, you know, God, you know you're a failure or your whole life's over. And it's just not the case. You know, if our children are not feeling safe, they're not going to learn. And we can kind of, for a lot of young people, they will continue through this. And yes, some people do need a little bit of cajoling and that's okay. But for us, we didn't. She wasn't in a place where she could do that. So that was my only option. And I think the school... Well, I mean, it's fascinating hearing from friends whose children continue to be at that school. You know, then they started to do, oh, we're, you know, mental health champions and we're this and we're that. And I'm like, "Mm." well, if you were, you probably would have looked at what we've done and you would have maybe asked me to come back and talk to you. And I would talk. I'm not here to slate anybody or anyone's approach because, you know, fundamentally, at the end of the day, mental health wasn't on their agenda in 2015 because, you know, I got a phone call one day to say, oh, I'm really sorry. This is... This, you know, back in 2015, 2016, really sorry, Mrs. Alderson, um, but um, Izzy hasn't been in school today. She did sign into the register this morning, but she's not uh, been in school for the rest of the day, and uh, we're not quite sure where she is. And I said, oh, that's okay, don't worry. I know exactly where she is. She's in bed, where she's been for the last six months, struggling with her mental health, depressed, suicidal. And they were like, oh, oh, uh, oh, let me just check on that oh you know do, 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 tip it away on the on the keyboard oh sorry I've got the wrong person I'm like yes you have got the wrong person in every single way there you know that's just really unacceptable so I think that there's human error in this that's a human error you know you can but the problem is is that when we are I think as parents we can feel so responsible we are blamed so much and we are so responsible for attendance and everything else you know, it becomes quite us and them. And so that collaboration between schools needs to be greater. I think there needs to be greater understanding. I'd love to see lived experience mentors as parents in schools, because I think that would just help. You know, I do a lot of schools chats where I go and say, look, here I am. I'm not a rubbish mum. I am. I'm a great mum. You know, I'm not a great mum. I'm a good enough mum. That's all I need to be. But this is what happened to me. And this is why. And if it's happening to you, that's okay. It is an opportunity, but you're going to have to do some work around it. Um, 
And I think, you know, that, I don't know whether you feel like this, whenever I used to go into the school, I always used to feel like I was back in school because it's, you know, talking to peers, adults, as Mrs. So-and-so or Mrs. Mr. Whatever. Um, and I think the whole dynamic, that whole hierarchical dynamic doesn't support compassion, doesn't support understanding. It certainly doesn't support collaboration or it certainly didn't in our, in our instance. Well, and parent-school relationships, like you said, when you go to secondary school, are pretty non-existent you know I mean I, I I found that with my children having gone from a very supportive primary school to then a secondary school and now a sixth form college it's just so different you don't have you don't feel like you have any say any input there's nothing and you also like you say you feel like you almost feel like the teenager who is spoken to still like a child when you're speaking to the parents and you know i the the thing I was going to say before is that actually when my children are included in a conversation as an adult by other adults, they are different people. You know, their responses are just incredible. And actually, that's kind of what you need from the school with the parents to actually treat you like a meaningful part of that young person's life who is actually going to be there to help them in their kind of journey to get that child where they need them to go and without that partnership like you say it's it's almost impossible you can't you can't do it because you know your children go in the morning I have no idea really what goes on what's happening you know my children talk to me I'm very lucky that that I do have that relationship that they talk to me but I don't know if they're telling me everything I'm sure they're not you know it's you know that so I I I absolutely 100% agree with you on that I think that schools have a huge amount to answer for and I think they need to move on dramatically from you know still, like you say it still feels like when we were at school and that was a long time ago <laughs> yeah, yeah I think it's also it's, it's it's systems isn't it so we don't want to blame yeah. teachers and educators because there are some brilliant ones out there, there um, and likewise with cams you know there's the people in there are doing a job that they've chosen electively chosen to do this job because they are caring and compassionate and they want to help people the trouble we've got is the systems so when we look at schools, the metric is not, are you uh, well-adjusted, connected, purposeful? It's how many exams are you going to take or how many exams have you passed? And that for me, those metrics, the metrics I call them, the metrics of the majority are really damaging to connective families and to being a, an individual. You know, as I said earlier, I'm a bit of an outlier. I always have been. And I would, I think for me, that's, you know, I didn't ever really fit into those kinds of structures. And if you don't fit into them, then it's almost like it's not okay. Well, you don't fit in. It's like well, you're wrong, mm. and that's that's a damaging thing to share with a young person if they don't fit into a structure that really is outdated and doesn't serve the 21st century. But that's another ramp for another day, I'm sure. I think it's also that um, when I went to a school that wasn't academic, it was quite a small school. It and I was very lucky that. Um, it was very close by and everything else but everybody was seen as a person and it when I say my year group alone was there was there was 11 of us so that was my whole year now so that's how small it was and um, so but I look back on that and I'm like actually 
was so lucky to be seen as a person and we were able to take off what we want. If you were academic, there was the option. If you weren't academic, there was, it was all about the person. And I think that's the scary part of, for teenagers particularly, is they go into these big environments and they become a, a, a number in a lot of ways and actually they don't necessarily have a sense of belonging to anything or and that's when they're searching for that and I think it's just having those conversations with them and being so open with them about the fact that school is important but it's not everything can you know it's it's not defining for the rest of your life um and I think also my other kind of thought as we've been talking is I think so many times parents think that their parenting is judged by the success of their children. So if their children are deemed successful within society, you've become a successful parent. You, you were a great parent. Your child's done really well at GCSE or your child has got a good job or it's all of that, you know, they do really well at this. And I think that's not how it should be. It should just be about how happy, you know, how content in life is that? Are they doing what they love? Are they being who they want to be? And all of those sorts, of, I said happiness, that's not what I meant, but generally kind of content with themselves and their their being rather than this whole everyone being judged by success, whatever success looks like. And at school, it's from exam results. At work, it's how, you know, do you get promotion? It's, it never stops, really, does it? I think, uh, Claire, what you said there, two things. One is the the metrics of success. How do we define success? And as parents, it wasn't really until Izzy got ill that I started to con- consider what I did deem successful. Um, and I think for many parents, maybe those listening whose children aren't in school or won't take the exams that they thought, actually... there is always time there's always time if that's what your metric of success is but equally it's like that's your metric of success what is your child's metric of success and so for me the only the only way I know I'm a good parent is if I hear it from my children that's the only way I'll define whether I'm a good parent or not it's whether or not I'll hear it from them and some days you know they might say no and that's okay you know because it is we are on a long journey together but I think going back to your point about or two of both of your points around that transition to senior school and also that sense of belonging or lack of belonging in large environments. You know, young people are looking for, you know, physiologically looking for um, similarities so that they can feel safe. So actually what we can do, because that's going to happen in the school, you are going to end up wearing the same things as your your friends, having the same bags, having the same pencil cases, all that sort of stuff, because that's how you'll feel physiologically safe. And I think our role as parents in the home is to say, like, let's celebrate your differences. You know, Izzy was always highly creative and we always celebrated that. And it's about saying, you know, it's almost like shedding the school when when they get in and, and you know, you're home now, you're safe now, not in a kind of an adversarial you weren't safe at school, but you're safe to explore in a way that is free. So we're going to celebrate mm. the things that you do differently. We are going to celebrate and, and encourage things out of school as well. And I think that's the other challenge is that we can look at school, particularly when we're busy as parents, if we're working, like I said, I run my own business. 
And that's in, in, intense and it's consuming. So to kind of consider, right, okay, as a family, we're going to go off here now or do whatever. I was working too much. There wasn't the space and time for that. But if we had have done that, maybe we'd have, you know, we certainly did that as she came out of, um, you know, the two years when she was effectively in bed. I mean, she did do stuff in that time. She taught herself a huge number of skills. She's got a, a understanding of philosophy, which is, you know, beyond compare she can sew she can cook she taught herself you know a load of different things she coached a team she became a top 500 player in a game that she played online I mean she did loads of things and they were all different to what we would have done had we have continued in that kind of right we're in school and then we're in home and actually it, it was either school or home it was never really about her and that's what it mm. should be so, and I think that tran transitional time into senior school is incredibly challenging for young people. You said there, you know, you're used to having that connection with a really supportive primary school, and then suddenly they are a number, and you don't have that person that you can just say, "Oh, do you know what? You had a really bad day yesterday," or "This is worrying them," um, and that's hard as well. But you know, I think there's that. I I really like the prep school approach up to thirteen. Because then, obviously, you've got kind of into puberty a little bit more as well. And um, that just helps young people. I think it helps us Absolutely. with that transition too. I agree, yeah. I think we probably ought to start thinking about wrapping up, but just otherwise we'll keep you here all day, Suzanne, <laughs> to talk to you about things. But can you just tell us um, about your book, about the website, just summarise where people can find you, you know, social media, all of that stuff, just kind of, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, sure. So Parenting Mental Health is a registered charity and you can find us at parentingmentalhealth.org. That's all one word, parentingmentalhealth.org. Uh, and we've also got um, our Facebook community. If you search for that on Facebook, if you do come and join us as a parent, please answer the questions. It's really important to us that we keep that space safe for everybody. Um, we've also got a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash parenting mental health. You can find us on Instagram at parenting mental health. You can find us on LinkedIn and on YouTube. And actually on YouTube, we've got a free partnering, not parenting bite sized course that you can come to. And that's youtube.com slash at parenting mental health. Uh, my book is called Never Let Go, How to Parent Your Child Through Mental Illness. And as I say, your child doesn't have to have mental illness. It might just be one of those little entrees into a shift in your own um, communication style and connection and you can buy that on Amazon and in bookshops um, you can find me on social media at Suzanne Alderson pretty much everywhere and um, yeah our our charity website has a huge number of resources on it um, you can sign up to volunteer you can sign up to support us um, sponsor us and you can also get access to our resources all of our courses all of our safe spaces um, and the ways that we help parents. So yeah, really welcome to come and have a little look and to hopefully join us if you need us. Um, I think I just have to say on behalf of Claire and I, Suzanne, you are inspirational <laughs> and the work you've done, I mean, just reeling it off then, wow, that's incredible. And just, you know, thank you from all the parents <laughs> out there. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. It's been a great chat. I think we could have carried on all day. We absolutely could have done. Yeah. Thank you. And Thank you yeah, so much. I'm sure been... we'll be in touch again. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. If I can do anything to help, then let me know. I'm, yeah, I'm very happy to. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
that's everything for today. Thanks for listening. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, we'd love you to get in touch and let us know. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bespoke Family or head to our website. The links are in our show notes. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode and please give us a rating or review if you like what you hear. We're Bex and Claire and we'll be back soon with another episode of Newborn to Teen and everything in between. See you then.